Welcome to Crop Watch Podcast, a production of Nebraska Extension. Welcome back to the Crop Watch Podcast. I'm your new host, Nate Dorsey. For a little background on myself, I'm a water and integrated cropping systems educator for Dodge and Washington counties in eastern Nebraska, and I'm super excited to be part of the podcast and your new host going forward. So the Crop Watch podcast is really designed and meant to be a companion to the Crop Watch website. So for those who don't know, we have uh, our website where we post regular articles. These are more informal than, say, a regular research paper. So these would be at www.cropwatch.unl.edu. And we try to publish articles here weekly. So it's a great place to get the most up-to-date information on what's going on in the state. And also at the start of these episodes going forward, we also want to go through a few things in terms of events that are coming up. And I recognize that you might not be listening to this episode at the same time that we release it or around the same time. So depending on when you're listening, not all the events that we mention may be relevant. So again, to get the most update information, recommend going to the cropwatch.unl.edu website. So for those who are listening around the same time that this episode is released, We have crop production clinics that are coming up. These will be held at the end of August, so August 23rd and August 24th. Uh, August 23rd is our soybean production clinic, and the next day, August 24th, is our corn production clinic. And these will be held at the Eastern Nebraska Research Extension and Education Center in Ithaca, Nebraska. Then as we go further west in the state, we will be holding Water and Crops Field Day at the West Central Research Extension and Education Center in North Platte. So these would all be great events to attend, depending on where you are in the state and and what you're available for. And we have these research uh, facilities all throughout the state, so hopefully we will be bringing some additional content and maybe some podcast episodes going forward uh, about some of these events and some of the information that we cover there. Another event that's uh, good to have on the calendar is Husker Harvest Days. This is coming up in September. This will be held September 13th through 15th in Grand Island, Nebraska. And UNL, of course, is not organizing the event, but we will have booths there. And we will have some folks from Extension that will be manning those booths, and we would love to have you stop by. And we'll have booths with things around precision agriculture, crop production, irrigation, livestock, and much more. So moving forward with our episode for today, we're going to talk about something that's uh, that I actually just ran into in the field just the other day. The weather has been really hot and dry throughout the state, which obviously can have some negative effects on our crops when we think about drought stress. But one of the things that we don't always associate with hot and dry weather is disease and pest problems. Usually we think of disease pressure and things like insects more being more common when it's cooler and, and wet weather. But with spider mites, it's a little bit different. And just the other day, I was with a grower in a field uh, looking at some soybeans and that the field had some yellowing and he was concerned about what was going on. So I flipped over the leaves and then the, on the underside, there was dense webs that looked like uh, spider webs. And those are spider mites. So um, here to talk with us about spider mites is Dr. Bob Wright, who is an entomologist with the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. And he just published some articles on our CropWatch website about spider mites, which were really informative. So I'm, I'm happy to have Dr. Bob Wright on the podcast today. So Bob, would you mind giving us a brief introduction on yourself and your path to becoming an entomologist? Okay, well, I have a research and extension appointment in the entomology department. I'm based on campus here in Lincoln. In Nebraska, I have broad extension responsibilities for agronomic crops, don't really have a geographic limit, but 
we have entomologists at North Platte and Scotts Bluff, so I cover the eastern half of the state jointly with Tom Hunt and Justin McMechan. So between the three of us, we try to cover the eastern half of the state in terms of agronomic crops. Yeah, no, it's great. It's great to have that resource here at the university. So one of the first questions that I have in thinking about spider mites, you know, I'm not an entomologist. I'm, I'm more focused on agronomy and precision agriculture. That's more of my background. So when it comes to spider mites, I've always been curious why they favor hot and dry weather. Well, there's a couple of reasons. One thing is that there's some fungal pathogens of spider mites that are favored by cooler weather conditions. And it doesn't have to be severely wet, but sometimes later in August, early September, we may get some cool cloudy days where there's leaf wetness and that can favor fungal pathogens of insects, including spider mites. Uh, that, that's one reason the, the fungal pathogens that sometimes limit their abundance are not favored by the hot, dry weather. Also, interestingly, there's a predatory spider mite that, that attacks, feeds on the plant feeding spider mites. And particularly the, I think prob probably both the banks and, and two-spotted spider mite, their optimal temperature for reproduction is higher than the predatory mite. So when it's hotter, the plant feeding mites are favored over the predatory mites. So that's another reason. Sure. No, that's, that's really interesting. And you mentioned the two uh, spider mite species, which are, are the, the two spotted spider mite and the banks grass spider mites as being the primary mites that we have to be concerned about when it comes to plant feeding. Could you explain to us some of the differences between the two, how we can tell them apart, and also the types of damage and crops that they typically go after? Okay. The, the two spotted spider mite has the broadest host range in terms of crops in eastern Nebraska, it's mainly on corn and soybeans, but it has a very broad host range that it can attack other plants as well. It's the the spider mites you'll see on your garden vegetables in your backyard or in bedding plants. So it has a very broad host range. The Banks grass mite, as you might guess by its common name, is restricted to grasses. Primarily in Nebraska, it'd be a pest of corn and sorghum. It can infect uh, other grasses as well. But uh, mainly in, in terms of economic crops, it would be corn and grain sorghum or any sorghum. Sure. So if somebody has, they're concerned about spider mites, they might notice some yellowing of their leaves, maybe some webbing underneath. How would they go about figuring out what kind of spider mites they might have? Okay. And let me maybe back up a minute. The reason you see yellowing is spider mites have uh, piercing mouth parts and they feed, as you mentioned, on the undersides of the leaf. And initially you'll see little yellow spots where the spider mites feed. And over time, those spots become bigger and you can have the whole, in the case of soybeans, the whole leaf would look yellow. In case of corn, you'd have larger sections of it that yellow. But there other things can cause leaf yellowing. A lot of other things can cause leaf yellowing, whether it's drought stress, nutrient stress, among other things, or maybe some plant diseases. So it's important to uh, check and confirm that it's spider mites that are causing the injury. Two-spotted spider mite tend to have more webbing on their undersides of the leaf. But the other thing is you probably need a hand lens to be sure that you can tell it's a spider mite. 
to look at under under magnification. He also did magnification to distinguish between the two mites. The uh, two-spotted spider mite, as suggested by its common name, has a greenish spot on each side of the abdomen. The Banks grass mite has some coloration on the abdomen, but it's uniform down the length of the abdomen. There's not a spot. So those are things you can see with a hand lens. Right. And then that's one thing that I, I didn't have in the field when I was looking at this uh, soybean field with a, with a grower that I was visiting. And they're so small that I, I really couldn't see them very well just by looking at it with my naked eyes. So I could see how that would be really helpful. But I, on, on soybeans, it's not that much of an issue as the two-spotted mite would be the main mite you're going to see in Nebraska. Uh, you're not going to see Banks grass mites on soybeans. And you have some really great pictures that are part of the article that you published on CropWatch. So if anyone is interested in seeing exactly what these look like, again, that's the resource that I would recommend going to, checking out this article so you can see exactly what we're talking about. But the two-spotted spider mite really does have those two spots uh, that you can see on, on either side. The Banks grass mite, it's a little bit harder to tell for sure, but the spots are not anywhere near as defined as the, the two-spotted spider mite, at least from the pictures that I could tell in your article. Um, that's a that's a, that's a really great resource. Now, in terms of management, I think that that's one of the first things that we try to think of is okay. There's a problem in the field. I have some yellowing on either my my corn or my soybeans. What can I do to help treat this field or prevent it from happening in the future? And you know, I think that one of the first things that we jump to often are chemical control. But there are also some integrated pest management strategies that I'm sure you might have and, and could recommend before we even get to that point. What, what types of, uh, of strategies, both in terms of, of other types of pest management than even progressing to chemical control, if it's serious enough, do you recommend? Well, I guess the important thing from an IPM perspective is that there are a lot of natural enemies of spider mites out in the field. There's several predatory insects. There's actually some small types of lady beetles that again, you probably need a hand lens to see. There's predatory mites lacewing larvae like sp spider mites. And there's also the aureus bug is a great predator of uh, spider mites. So there's a lot of natural enemies of spider mites out in most of our agricultural fields if we don't do something to disrupt that. And one of the th challenges we have is that uh, a lot of people, when they put out a, a herbicide or fungicide earlier in the season, they think, well, I'm, I'm paying for the applicator. I might as well throw in an insecticide just in case there's some insects out there. The problem is a lot of the insecticides we use are broad spectrum and will kill the beneficial insects, the predatory insects, as well as any plant feeding insects. So you, the, main, the main thing would be using thresholds for any insect application, whether it's for uh, Western bean cutworm or other insects earlier in the season, maybe some a small number of defoliating insects and soybeans. Well, we're seeing a lot of Japanese beetles this year in soybeans. They're very uh, obvious because they feed on the top of the canopy and you really need to assess the whole canopy before making a, a treatment decision. But these early, we have past anecdotal evidence when, when we do have spider mite outbreaks, oftentimes a greater percent of the fields that have problems were those where there was an earlier season application of a broad spectrum insecticide that killed off the natural enemies. 
So that's a, that's a major IPM practice. I guess the other thing is your scouting fields, a couple of things, oftentimes the uh, spider mites will start off in areas that are water stressed, whether it's a, an area, a spot in the field that has a lighter soil or a south facing board, uh, edges of the field that again are more prone to drought stress. Earlier in the season with both the Banks grass mite and Banks and two-spotted spider mite, they overwinter outside of the field. So maybe if you're downwind of a of a habitat, either in the case of Banks grass mite, oftentimes we have them migrating into corn from broom grass areas or uh, a pasture. Two-spotted spider mites can come from a lot of things, but Again, bordering areas that have brought overwintering broadleaf weeds can harbor two-spotted spider mites or an alfalfa field would harbor spider mites as well as an overwintering site. So just being aware of where they might show up and again, finding them early before they get too populous because they're, they're relatively hard to control with pesticides. So you want to keep on top of where they are and what, what populations they have. Yeah, thanks for that. You know, I think that you you describing some of those places in the field, like the south facing slopes, or maybe areas of the field where you have lighter soil. Again, those are probably areas of the field that have a, a hotter, a drier microclimate than other areas of the field that would favor spider mites. So that, that makes total sense. You mentioned thresholds, and I think that's a that's a really great practice for understanding when you need to make a chemical control. So for spider mites in particular, what are those thresholds that the university recommends? Okay, it's very labor intensive to actually sample and count the mites. In corn, there are some older thresholds that are based on the percent of leaf area covered by mites or damaged by mites. And they're rather complicated and uh, were research based, but they weren't very practical. So we, on corn, we've gone back to an older threshold or guideline in terms of if you have active colonies of mites that are reproducing, that means usually when you have a colony of mites, there may be a quarter or nickel-sized spot of multiple mites in an area, and you could find eggs. On corn, if you have active colonies reproducing up to the ear leaf and dying leaves below the ear leaf, that certainly is a treatable level. It's less, less defined on soybeans. But again, it's, it depends on the amount of damage. Again, if you have a, a lot of dead leaves on the on the lower canopy in soybeans, and again have active colonies of mites with eggs, that is probably a treatable level as well. So again, you definitely need a hand lens to see the eggs. Yeah. <laughs> or and uh, see, you know, because again, if we have just damage and no mites, we don't want to treat for that situation. Right. Yeah. If you needed a hand lens just, just to see the spider mites themselves, you would definitely need one for the eggs. <laughs> now, let's say that you followed good IPM strategies, maybe holding off on an insecticide treatment early in the season, kind of watching the field and, and monitoring those thresholds. And you still get to the point where maybe you need to have a, some kind of chemical control. You mentioned that chemical control for spider mites can be kind of difficult and challenging. So how would you go about making that as effective as possible? And, and I think the primary reason that I can think of is because they're usually on the underside of the leaves, which is a harder place for our sprayers to reach. So how do we go about making sure that they're as effective as possible? Yeah, especially in corn, because they're in the lower quarter of the plant usually, or below the ear leaf before you want to treat. 
So in corn, you want to use a higher volume of spray. Some of the labels will specify a 10 or 15 gallon per acre application minimum. Uh, so read, read the label and see what the company recommends in terms of minimum spray gallonage. Chemigation is an option for some people, and that can get better coverage down deeper in the canopy. And it, also with soybeans, you need a, a higher spray volume than you do with a lot of things that are up in the upper canopy. So that, that's the main, probably the biggest issue next to insect uh, pesticide selection. Where some of the older, I guess some people refer to this as insecticides, things that that have activity against both insects and mites. And we use a lot of pyrethroid insecticides and a few organophosphate insecticides in corn and soybeans that have activity against mites. And it, a lot of people use those, especially, well, they're, they're cheaper than some other products. So a lot of people want to use them. The challenge with those products is they're good. They're relatively good against the adults and immatures, but they have no activity against the eggs. And so you may be able to knock down the population with the first spray. You've also killed off all the natural enemies. And then a, a five to seven days later, the eggs hatch and you have a reinfestation with no natural enemies left to control them. And so that, that's a challenge, especially if you're spraying earlier in the season for spider mites. Uh, you want to be careful. You don't want to treat earlier than you need to, because once you do use a broad spectrum insecticide, they may be able to resurge, as we call it, reinfest the plants. And again, we've killed off the natural enemies. There are newer products that are available in, in both corn and soybeans that are also more selective in terms of not, not being so harsh to natural enemies. And some of those have activity against both eggs and immatures, but some of the newer products aren't as good as against adults. And that may not be, be a, as important as the fact that they're not as bad on beneficial insects and they're more expensive. So be aware of what product you're using and, and what characteristics it has, whether it's likely to, to kill eggs or not. And if it doesn't kill the eggs, you definitely need to go back and sample again a week after the treatment and see if you have a new population of mites present. The last question that I'll ask is for someone who might be listening to the podcast that's struggling with spider mites in their fields, especially considering the hot and dry weather that we've had throughout the state this summer, where can they go to learn more about spider mites or chemical control options, or maybe some of the research that we have available from the university? Well, as you mentioned, our recent, we have a pair of CropWatch articles recently that cover a lot of the details of what we're talking about. We have a NEB guide, but it's a little out of date in terms of the pesticide information. But the CropWatch would be the, the best choice right now. Then we also have the extension circular 130, which has all the pesticide use information and for corn and soybeans in terms of rates and restrictions and pre-harvest intervals and all that type of information. Great. Yeah, those are great resources. And if someone wants to to reach out and, and talk to you directly or or get in contact with you, how, how can they do that? Oh, probably my email address is best. It's rwright2 at unl.edu. 
Perfect. Well, thanks very much for spending some time with us, Dr. Wright. We really enjoyed having you on the CropWatch podcast again. You've been a, a, a guest here several times in the past. So, Well, you're welcome. If you're interested in some of the guides and articles that were mentioned in this episode, we will post them in the show notes so you can pull those up on your phone or computer with whatever device you're listening to this on. You can follow me on Twitter at UNL Nate Dorsey, where you can tweet me comments or suggestions for the show. And you can also follow the CropWatch Twitter account at UNL underscore CropWatch. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the CropWatch podcast.